Hey everyone, welcome back to the first session of the Philosophy of Data Science series. Today we have a very uh, fun presentation on the value of values in science. And uh, this is obviously a topic that's seen quite a bit of coverage, not only in data science, but in science as a whole. And we are very fortunate that essentially we have several centuries of thought on the issue uh, preceding us to help guide us along. And today uh, to guide us through that journey will be Kevin Zulman from the Carnegie Mellon University. And uh, so Kevin, maybe just to start off, you could tell us a little bit about your research interests before we jump into your presentation. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a philosopher of science at Carnegie Mellon, and I'm largely interested in the use of mathematical and computer simulation models in social behavior, both in humans and non-human animals. But I'm also broadly very interested in issues about the social organization of science. So that is, how does science function as a kind of social entity rather than the traditional individual scientist working alone, which is the image that I think many of us have in our minds. Yeah, definitely. And actually, that reminds me uh, very quickly that uh, the original reason that Kevin and I got in contact was because I was pestering him to talk a little bit more about the interface of the philosophy of mathematics with data science and how these two entities might interact. And when we were talking about the different topics we might want to cover, I said, oh, well, maybe we should do, uh, you listed out three topics, all three, which were very interesting. And then we settled on, well, maybe we should do this, uh, this values in science one first, because um, one, I think it's very interesting and it helps sort of lay out some of these other ideas. Um, so yeah, definitely. And so now uh, I guess we'll jump on to the presentation. So I'm really excited to be here. I'm really uh, uh, glad that Glenn asked me to join it, join you and to talk about uh, this question. This is a deep and, and, and longstanding question in both philosophy of science, but I think it's been integral into science in general, which is the degree to which we think that science should be value free. And this is a topic that's of particular interest to philosophers of science right now. It's been an active topic of discussion, something that a lot of philosophers are working on and dealing with, both as a broad question for science as a whole, and also philosophers are focusing on it in very specific sciences like economics or psychology or computer science. Here I'm going to talk about it as a broad problem for all of sciences, although there are particular versions of this question that can apply to specific sciences or to specific pro problems. The underlying idea is based on uh, this, this notion that we have, that there's a sort of division of labor. That is, science or scientists, as well as statisticians and data scientists, are interested in figuring out what is the case. Their job is to tell us how the world is and maybe to predict how the world will be, but their job is not to tell us about what ought to be the case. We think about that as principally the domain of politics or philosophy or religion or something else that people oftentimes think of as not science. And so you can find lots of scientists and policymakers who say the scientist's job is to tell us what is the case and it's the politicians or, or someone else's job to tell us what we do about that or what we do with that knowledge. Behind this is something that Heather Douglas, a philosopher of science, has called the value-free ideal. And the value-free ideal is this notion that science is supposed to function in a certain sense in a value uh, a vacuum. That is that they shouldn't have to worry about what's right and wrong, what's preferable or non-preferable, what's desirable or what's good. They should just worry about what is. And then the value judgments about what's good and bad are left to someone else, are taken outside of science. 
uh, outside of science. Of course, scientists might have those opinions. They can vote for whomever they like. But when they're acting as a scientist, they are supposed to, in a certain sense, act in a way that's value free. I think it's fair to say that while this image is very popular, both uh, popular with philosophers for maybe about 50 years, but also popular in the broader conception of what science is and how it works, I think it's fair to say that philosophers are beginning to think that this idea really does not hold water. That is, you cannot ultimately take values completely out of science. Now, you might be able to increase or decrease the degree to which they influence science. And that's something at the very end of this discussion I'll talk about. But ultimately, science can never be totally value-free. Scientists cannot escape making at least some value judgments. And so what I thought I would do for this video is to walk through five of the basic ways that philosophers think that values can sort of become relevant or are inextricably linked to what we think of as ordinary everyday science. And I'm going to go through each one, talk about it briefly, and give an example which I think might be of interest to statisticians and data scientists. Um, but these aren't the only examples. There are going to be other examples as well. And, and so this is just a, a sort of way to start thinking about the problem. At the very end, I'll give you a, a very short list of a couple of my favorite papers in this area. And that's something that you can look into more if you're interested. The literature is quite large, and so I, I, I'm only scratching the surface. I don't want to pr pretend to be presenting everything that there is. So what are these five different areas? Well, here's, here's the initial list. And I'll go through each of these in detail, but let me just run through them very quickly. The first is constraints on the kinds of research that we conduct. I think that this one is probably the most familiar to statisticians and data scientists and will come as no surprise. The second is, I think, also something that, that many people understand is that all of us, of course, have many research problems that we might work on. And when we choose a research problem to work on, that's oftentimes guided by value judgments. So we're recording this video during the pandemic. Lots of scientists have started to work on uh, 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 researching the virus that causes the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, they're doing that because they're guided by a value of help in society. No one is really that surprised by it. I think the latter three are the ones that are potentially more surprising. So the first is this notion of a loss function, which some folks who have done some work in statistics or uh, uh, may know. Um, uh, in the data science world, machine learning world, sometimes this is called an objective function. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how that is something which we really can't avoid putting values into. Um, and then the last two are related to the things that we think of as, as fundamentally statistical practice. So choice of variables and definition of the variables that we're measuring, and also the choice of a statistical model are both things where even though we think of those as being fundamentally value-free, in fact, values do sneak in in interesting ways. So I'm gonna start with the first one, constraints on research. So this is very, quite very familiar, especially to anyone who's done human subjects research in an academic context. That is, we have this notion that certain types of research are fundamentally disallowed. You cannot harm your subjects, especially without their consent. So you can't give them a disease, you can't inject them with something that's harmful, you can't uh, psychologically harm them without at least at the very minimum receiving their consent, but even with their consent, oftentimes we regard it as unethical. Similarly, there is expectations of care. So you can't tell your subjects that you're going to give them medical treatments and then not give them medical treatments, or you can't tell them that you're going to do something to help them, but then not do it. Um, 
Perhaps the one that I think is, is, is right now a subject of a substantial amount of discussion is the degree to which researchers have an obligation to protect the privacy of their subjects. So some of my colleagues in the computer science department here at Carnegie Mellon have shown how apparently anonymized data can be very easily de-anonymized using machine learning techniques. The simple illustration is, of course, if I tell you that a philosophy professor at Carnegie Mellon who studies game theory Ba, da, ba, 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 you'll be able to figure out immediately who that is with a simple web search. What my colleagues have shown is that, in fact, you can do this even when it seems less obvious that you have uh, uh, de-anonymized your own data. So all of these represent examples of how values put constraints on scientific research. You cannot conduct research that harms your subject or that doesn't provide them with care. And I think this, this one is familiar, so I won't go into too many details about this particular way that values affect science, because I think it's pretty familiar. The second way, which is I think also pretty familiar, is the idea that our values might guide our choice of research problem. So of course, as, as scientists or statisticians or data scientists, we have, a con we have constraints on our time. We, we can't do every project that we could conceivably imagine. And so as a result, we have to make a decision. Do we want to work on this project or that one? So for instance, if I'm uh, uh, researching in drug development and I can work on a drug to treat dengue fever or to treat baldness, I have to decide which of these two uh, things I find more important. Or if I'm a company, I might be deciding which of these two things is more profitable. And one of the things that philosophers and others have, have pointed out is that there is a sense in which what's profitable and what's ethical seem to come apart. That is, you can make more money with treatments for baldness, but perhaps we might care more from an ethical standpoint about dengue fever. This is, of course, another place where values are going to affect a scientist's or statistician's decisions. Whether to work on one problem or another will be guided by whether or not the scientist thinks that that project is going to be better in some notion of better, whether that's more profitable or, uh, or ethically better. And so as a result, uh, this is another way that values can affect science. Both of these I think feel very familiar and don't feel particularly revolutionary. And so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Instead, I want to start talking about the way that values can sneak into what we oftentimes think of as the fundamental parts of science. That is the part where we decide what our science shows. And the first way is I think something that many statisticians and data scientists will uh, at least be vaguely familiar with. And this is the idea of the loss function. So for some of you, this, familiar, this term may be familiar, but, but if it's not familiar to you, let me give you a couple of examples. In your introduction statistics class, you undoubtedly were told about the difference between type one and type two errors, right? These are the, the two different fundamental errors when you're doing, say, a hypothesis test. Do you reject a true hypothesis or do you accept a false hypothesis? These are both types of errors. Now, as you may have learned in those introductory classes, different types of tests balance these uh, two different types of errors differently. And so as a result, you have to decide in certain settings which of these two different types of errors is more important. Do you care more about rejecting, accidentally rejecting true hypotheses, or do you care more about uh, accidentally failing to reject false hypotheses? And there's no answer to that question 
unless we specify a problem. So I have a picture here of a bridge that collapsed, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington. Here is a classic case where one type of error is much worse than a different type of error. That is, I would rather build a bridge that is accidentally overbuilt and used a little bit more materials than it needed to than I would want to build a bridge that was underbuilt. The error here is not symmetric. It's not having a bridge collapse is not the same kind of catastrophe as having a bridge that has a little bit extra steel in it. Right? You'd rather have one rather than the other. This isn't just about hypothesis testing though. Um, for instance, if you have a machine learning classifier that's trying to decide, say, whether this is a picture of an antelope or not, it can make two types of errors. It can include or exclude things that it shouldn't. So it can call a picture of a cat an antelope. That's one type of error. It can fail to call a picture of an antelope an antelope. That's a different type of error. Which one is worse? Well, it depends on the purposes to which you're going to put your classifier. If it's about counting the number of antelope in a given area, you might want to overcount or undercount, depending on what the purposes are going to be that you're going to put it to. Similarly, when you're making quantitative predictions, so if you're, for instance, trying to predict the number of cases of a disease or you're trying to predict the amount of rainfall in the next year, you might, depending on what you're doing, care about the distance from the truth in different ways. And similarly, for all sorts of machine learning problems, you often specify an objective function. That is what the machine is trying to do. And you may, that objective function doesn't come from nowhere. That objective function is ultimately made with an underlying idea of the purpose that you're putting it to. All of these are broadly called inductive risk by philosophers. That's the term that they use. So the idea of inductive risk is anytime we venture to make a prediction or anytime we venture to classify the world, we're engaging in inductive logic and we run the risk of being wrong. That's the nature of statistics and data science. But the question is, what risks are we taking when we're wrong in one direction and in the other? And so this is a broad classification of these, of these types. I want to give you a very simple and probably quite familiar example of this, of this kind of phenomena. So we're recording this video shortly before the 2020 election, and polling errors are, is something that is very much in the air. But consider an interesting fact, which a lot of people aren't aware. There was actually a larger polling error in the US 1992 presidential race than in the 2016 presidential race. In the 2016 presidential race, famously, the polls predicted that Hillary Clinton would win, and in fact, Donald Trump won. We don't know so much about the 1992 one because the 1992 uh, polls predicted that Bill Clinton would win, and in fact, Bill Clinton did win. He just won by a different margin than the polls predicted. So that's an example of a case where the, 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 the distance is not really what people pay attention to when they're judging the accuracy of a prediction. They're really paying attention to something more qualitative. Does it predict the winner of the election or not? And this is a setting where, of course, it makes a lot of sense to think about this as not a quantitative prediction, but rather a qualitative prediction. And it's a case where different um, different senses of the loss function might actually affect the test that you use. So if you have a different notion of the loss function, you might make different, fundamentally different predictions because that's built into your judgment about the statistical test or built into your, uh, how you build your machine learning algorithm. 
And that's really the fundamental point here, is that it's not just a matter of judging the output of a statistical method or judging the output of a machine learning algorithm. That when you are building the statistical test, you're deciding on a balance between type one and type two error, or you're deciding on a loss function, or you're deciding on an objective function. And so as a result, even though you may not realize it, you're building in value assumptions as you design the statistical test. And so it's not a question of just interpreting the output of the statistical test, but rather part of the design process. And this is a really, really important point that uh, philosophers have started to make when they think about statistical methods, that you can't help but ask these questions as you choose from among available tests or as you design new tests. Philosophers are also generalizes beyond loss. I mentioned Heather Douglas earlier, and her book really focuses on this issue, which is this question about scientists should in choose what tests they use or how they present their findings with an eye to how their findings will be used. So for instance, suppose that you knew that your findings might be used for nefarious aims. That is, you may be aware that people will actively attempt to misrepresent or misinterpret your results. So for instance, if you um, are uh, uh, studying something that has a political consequence, you know politicians may spin it to a particular aim, perhaps an aim that you yourself don't even agree to. And what happens if you know that your conclusions might be widely misunderstood? So for instance, this is a common problem that scientists face. They state their conclusions in these very narrow, very careful ways, but then when it hits the popular press or when it becomes widely understood, people blow it up out of proportion, right? So a scientist might say that the number of avocados you eat has a tiny effect on your degree to getting cancer. And then when it shows up in the newspaper, it's avocados cure cancer, something like that. And so what degree do scientists have to say design their tests knowing that their results may be misinterpreted? And so Heather Douglas argues that this is actually something that they should anticipate and should design into their tests. I'm not necessarily saying I agree with Douglas about this, but I think that this is a point about the way that very, very methodological choices might nonetheless have to be made in light of value judgments down the road. Now I'd like to move on to the next category, which is the choice of variables. This is one of those things that I think to many statisticians and data scientists feels like a kind of fundamentally value-free thing. Like, we're just measuring how the world is. And so if I'm choosing some variables, how could that possibly be value laden? But actually these things uh, turn out to be a little bit more complicated than uh, they initially seem. The first is just the fundamental question of how do you choose what to measure? So one of the things that philosophers have sometimes pointed out is that in a lot of economic studies, to use a particular example, oftentimes, the, uh, the dependent variable that's being measured is something like gross domestic product or productivity or gross domestic product per capita, some aggregate judgment of the economy which sums together all the productivity or sums together all the income or something along those lines. Now, in doing so, of course, the scientist isn't necessarily saying this is the only economic measure that's relevant, but they made a decision to measure that economic measure rather than something else. For instance, those who are very concerned about the plight of the very poor might suggest, let's not look at gross domestic product, but let's look at, say, the productivity of the bottom 10%. Or those who were principally concerned about, say, 
questions about ecological sustainability might say, let's not look at productivity, but let's look at productivity as measured against ecological impact or something like that. So in choosing which variables to measure, like in choosing which problems to work on, nonetheless, you're implicitly making value judgments. In particular, that this variable is more important than a variable that you chose not to measure. Similarly, when you define an objective function in say a machine learning context, you're saying we want to predict with high accuracy some feature. And that feature is itself a value judgment because you're saying this is the kind of thing we want to do. Now that's about choosing which variables, but actually it gets even crazier because the question is oftentimes we have to define the variables that we're measuring. So for instance, we don't necessarily always get to measure the world in its full complexity, but we oftentimes have to simplify it in various ways in order to make it amenable to quantitative analysis or measurement. So how do you even define those? So here's a, a, an example of one that's used in health research. It's called qualities, quality adjusted life years, where we have to make decisions about how do we trade off against shorter but higher quality life against longer but lower quality life, right? So if I, if I live in a vegetative state for 100 years, we regard that as not that great as if I live, say, a healthy and happy life for only 70 years. But when we define a single quantitative measure, like the quality, uh, we have to explicitly make decisions about how those two things trade off. How does quality and length uh, trade off against one another? And that's a value judgment. So even though we have a number, something that looks incredibly quantitative, it's a number that's been constructed out of a value judgment. Another example from economics is when we think about socioeconomic status, we oftentimes divide people into categories like low income, middle income, high income. And when we do that, we make value judgments that assume that there are no important relevant differences inside of the low income category or the middle income category or the high income category. So here by defining uh, what is ultimately a quantitative into a categorical variable, we're making all sorts of value judgments that there's nothing relevant that we need to learn or that we want to learn about interactions inside of those categories. And let me give you one last example, which is I think perhaps the most uh, uh, interesting but also difficult one. In mental illness research, we oftentimes classify people as mentally ill and having a particular mental illness. But it turns out that even though that feels very medical and very objective, um, it is medical, sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but it feels very objective. In fact, there are value judgments built into it in ways that, um, that uh, are sometimes the subject of debate. So I've put up on the screen in the box here, um, the DSM-5 definition of uh, mental illness. And here you see terms like dysfunction and other important activities. Well, in order to determine whether somebody is dysfunctional, you have to define what normal or regular function is. And when you de determine whether or not their, um, their mental illness is causing interruption in other important activities, you have to decide what is an important activity. So one of the things that philosophers who work in mental illness have pointed out is that inextricably, we have to define mental illness on the basis of value judgments. And that's not to say that it's wrong. It's no complaint against, against the DSM-5. 
It's just to point out that value judgments go into the definition of the very variables that we are measuring. That is, whether or not, say, somebody has clinical depression is determined by value judgments about what counts as normal or regular function and what counts as normal or important activities. And so as a result, even if you feel like you've done something value-free, the variable itself may have values baked into it. The very last example is the choice of a statistical model. And this is one of those things where it feels like it's got to be totally value-free because you're just trying to figure out what is your best statistical model. But it turns out that even in these contexts, values are going to influence your judgment. So the first thing is an old philosophical point that goes back at least to Thomas Kuhn in the 1950s and 60s, but uh, is something that philosophers have been pointing out for a long time. Whenever we make choices between different theories, we have to balance more than one criteria. That is, we don't just care about predictive accuracy. We also care about other things like how broad is our prediction? How simple is our prediction? How fruitful is our prediction? That is, how many different things does it predict? How consistent is our prediction or our mechanisms of prediction? That is, are the theories underlying them consistent with one another? And one that I'll add that's very important in the statistical context is how tractable is our model? If our model takes uh, uh, two years to run on a supercomputer, we might abandon that model in exchange for a less accurate model, but one that perhaps I can run on my laptop. And so deciding how to balance these criteria against one another is itself fundamentally value-laden judgment. Do I care more about predictive accuracy or about simplicity? This isn't something that you can just answer, that is, there's a true fact about it, but rather it depends on the purposes and it depends on what we want our model to be put to. Let me give you a simple example of this that comes up in epidemiology. So in epidemiology, there is a classic simple model that epidemiologists use and teach their you know, undergraduate students called the SIR model. It stands for Susceptible, Infectious, and Resistant Model. It's an incredibly simple model. It has three uh, differential equations. It, um, oh, I forgot now, I think it has two or three variables. It's very simple, relatively easy to fit to data. And in many contexts is actually incredibly accurate at predicting the dynamics of, of certain types of diseases in certain types of contexts. Now, at the other extreme, I've put up a picture here of the University of Pittsburgh's FRED model, which is an epidemiological model. I think this particular example is for measles, although they've used it for uh, flu and now most recently for COVID. It provides in the United States a county by county prediction of disease outbreaks. So here is a picture just of measles and just for Texas for a very particular situation. It's in, in, in particular predicting what would happen if vaccines, vaccination levels for measles dropped below a certain threshold. Now you can see the big difference. SIR is a giant population uh, model. It's supposed to predict big scale changes and it's with just a few variables and just a few equations. If you're gonna be predicting uh, it with the FRED model, I have no idea how many equations you would represent it. It's a computational model. It runs on a supercomputer. It takes a significant amount of time to run. It's def you know, I don't know how much code is behind it, but I'm sure it's a lot more than three lines, which is what you'd have for the SIR model. It's an example of a far more complicated model. Now, 
I'm not saying one of these models is right and one of these models is wrong. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. They're each right for different purposes, but to decide which one to use for a given statistical problem is itself a value judgment because you have to decide, do I care more about simplicity and tractability? Do I care more about very fine-grained accuracy? It depends on what you're doing and it depends on what you're going to be putting it to. And so you can't answer this question from a simple answer about what is the case, you have to make value judgments about what is this model going to be used for and what do I as a statistician or data scientist care about? What does my team care about? So that's a kind of whirlwind tour through the various ways that values might affect science. Let me just visit one last question very briefly, which is uh, one that I mentioned initially at the beginning. Values in science are inevitable. And this is what I think that is a general consensus view amongst philosophers, that some value judgments are inevitable. But that doesn't mean that everything is a value judgment or that we can't try and design science in ways to minimize them or more clearly articulate when they are taking place or have those value judgments be made in a more democratic process. That is, rather than the scientists deciding them, perhaps we should have those decisions be made by the communities that will be affected by the, by the, by the scientific decision-making. And this is one of those things which philosophers have debated. Should we try to minimize these? Should we try to make them more explicit? And should we try to make them more democratic? Just to give you one uh, example that's actually quite old in the philosophical community, the philosopher W.E.B. Du Bois in the 19th century argued that we should try to minimize values in science. And his argument was that it's very important that science appear to be neutral about the fundamental political issues of the day, precisely because it needs to be trusted by both sides. That is, it needs to be uh, in a certain sense, fundamentally viewed as an arbiter of truth rather than taking a political aim. So when he was writing about do, doing a sociology of African-Americans in Reconstruction in America, he was arguing that the sociologist should fundamentally not think about whether or not to take a position on uh, political issues of the day because the scientists needed to be trusted. And so he argues here that only by such a rigid adherence to the truth uh, as the object for the scholar can a statesman and philanthropist of all shades of belief be put into possession of a reliable body of truth which may guide their efforts uh, to the best and largest success. So what Du Bois is arguing is, is the degree to which he didn't really take a position about the degree to which values were inevitable in science, but he did argue that we should try and minimize it wherever possible that the scientists should try and minimize the value judgments that they make. And although I don't think he said this because this really wasn't available to him at the time, I, I think Du Bois would agree that, that in those cases where it is inevitable, it is imperative that the scientists be upfront and explicit about the value judgments that they're making. Precisely so that the uh, consumers of science can have faith that something isn't being snuck in or that there isn't something going under the radar, so to speak. So that's my sort of whirlwind tour of this. I've put up uh, on the screen now um, four of my favorite pieces on this particular topic, arguing both sides uh, of it. And I'd encourage anyone who's interested to take a look at them. Of course, as I said, there's an enormous literature here. And so, and so for any philosophers who are working that I didn't include your work, I'm 
I'm terribly sorry. There's much more and really great work to, to, to look at. And so anyone who's watching this video and interested, I would encourage you to uh, either write me or do a Google search or anything like that. You'll find m lots of interesting debates about various sciences and, and, and machine learning and about the way that values may uh, influence some ways that I didn't mention and also much more detailed analysis of some of the ways that I did. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, uh, Kevin, thanks so much for that. I thought it was really interesting. Um, actually, one of the things that I learned when, uh, when I was previewing your presentation was I didn't realize that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois actually, um, he lived into the 20th century, like well into the 20th century, which was, I thought, I always viewed him as a uh, 19th century or like early 20th century character. Um, but no, I, I was very impressed. He almost lived 100 years. And um, yeah. obviously, his, I was also impressed by the breadth of his philosophy actually touches on these subjects because I always viewed him as more of a uh, sociologist and writer. Yeah, he's a really interesting character. And unfortunately, I think to a certain extent, his philosophy got lost for quite a while. And I think, you know, it's due to a couple of different things. One thing is obviously racism. He was black and working on issues particularly uh, related to race. And traditional academic philosophy is very white and very affluent and so didn't pay attention to a lot of the writing. But also, I think it's the case that a lot of his philosophical uh, insights were put in inside of his sociological work. So that quote, for instance, is an example of that. And so I think it, it often um, it gets lost because he didn't really write a lot of exclusively philosophical works. He thought of his philosophy and his sociology as fundamentally connected. In fact, there really wasn't a distinction even between those fields at the time. So I have a student, I'm, I, I put one of his uh, papers into the uh, citations that I mentioned, former student, Liam Kofi Bright, who's done a really great job at going back through W.E.B. Du Bois and, and extracting some of his philosophical insights, especially in philosophy of science. Liam's not the only one. There are lots of other philosophers who have worked on W.E.B. Du Bois, so I don't mean to suggest that, you know, that he's the first or the only, but in particular, I think he's, he's done some interesting work in terms in trying to find, um, in, tr in trying to sort of extract those things that, that could easily get lost because it's an aside or it's an appendix or it's at the end of something where maybe a philosopher wouldn't necessarily know to go look. It is interesting because I think it's another great example where some of these philosophical ideas, that these ideas that are fundamentally philosophical and fundamentally scientific are effectively baked into the study yeah. subject that the writer is talking about. So for example, you can consider a great many of the physicists um, where they essentially they made philosophical strides um, in uh, essentially the philosophy of science, but it was entirely baked in within their own subject. And so um, I, I think that's very interesting. It's very interesting to see uh, some of them. I'm more familiar with, obviously, the, you would call them the harder sciences and the life sciences, but it, it's really interesting to see some of these philosophical ideas, um, I'd say, put, written so clearly in uh, some of the, like, the more humanities and social sciences. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's one of those things where, you know, this distinction between like philosophy as a humanities and, and then the sciences as sort of being fundamentally different is actually a very modern and not really very accurate conception. That is, Einstein was interested in philosophical problems. He said that he was inspired by David Hume to think about simultaneity. You know, Bohr, um, there's a little bit of a debate, but it seems like Bohr was inspired by Kant in terms of his interpretation of quantum mechanics. And there are lots of philosophers like Ernest Mach and, and Pierre Duhem who were doing both philosophy and physics. And so it really wasn't until the 20th century that people thought of these as sort of completely separate, had nothing to do with one another. 
um, fields. And this is something that modern day philosophers, uh, you know, and I'm hardly the only one, are really trying to sort of mend that. We think it was a mistake that both philosophers and scientists thought of these as sort of different disciplines and we're trying to sort of bring them back together because they really are not. Practicing scientists are doing philosophy sometimes when they do their science and, science and, and philosophers should be doing science as a, a part of their philosophy. Yeah, and I guess just as one quick follow-up on that, it reminds me a bit of uh, Samir Akasha, who uh, effectively, he is a philosopher, but he writes so extensively on the subject of biology. He's not just a philosopher, he's a philosopher of biology. Yeah. And um, he does a very good job at essentially bringing uh, to the front, for example, what you're talking about, where there are these subjective or non they're non-clear-cut boundaries in many of our decision processes and in many of our uh, classifications. So, yeah, I think, I think that is very interesting. And I always like uh, nice historical examples because I think people forget that they aren't the first people thinking of these problems. Like, there's <laughs> actually a tradition here. Um, a lot of it dates back to, um, you know, a Scottish guy up in Edinburgh. Um, and then his stuff, you know, it dates back to some uh, guy down in Cambridge. And then his stuff dates back to a whole bunch of Greeks and uh, yeah. some, uh, and some, I guess, Germans in between that and after <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I, I think it is important for a lot of people to realize that uh, a lot of these thoughts aren't, you know, we aren't pioneers in these thoughts. A lot of, uh, we, we have a, a rich history in it. I guess it's like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, or sorry, is it Emerson who uh, said something like, when you identify good ideas uh, from other people and, and self-reliance or saying, um, you know, if you, yeah. you'll frequently hear thoughts that you had yourself by great thinkers of the past. And so I think it is interesting that there's these connections. But um, yeah, I guess moving on, um, I would like to go back to the, I guess the last point you made in your presentation, which is um, whether or not the ideal of science and the ideal of value-free. Is the ideal that science is value-free or that it always is striving to be value-free? Because what I always view science is, is a dynamic process, not like a fixed process. And so striving towards the ideal seems to me more representative of science than the actual achievement. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. I think the way that it sometimes gets stated is that science is fundamentally value-free, or, or that it is um, at least has only scientific values. That's another way you sometimes get, get it, in, especially in philosophical circles. They'll make a distinction between sort of scientific values and non-scientific values. And they're suggesting that insofar as science has any values, it only has these sort of designated scientific ones like aiming at the truth or something like that. Um, but you're absolutely right. There, there are sort of two versions of the value-free ideal. One is to say that science is sort of absolutely value-free. Um, and another is to say that science should sort of strive to minimize the effect of values. Um, and I, I do think it's important to make a distinction between those two things, because if you think that science is fundamentally value-free, then, you know, if you're reviewing a paper, say, for a journal, you would reject any paper that said, I'm making, I'm relying on the following values, right? Because you would say, no, that's not science, that's value-free. Whereas if you were thinking that the goal of science was to minimize it, you might actually accept that particular uh, paper because it's doing a good job. It's being explicit about the values that it's relying on. And so I do think that actually that's a case where you might wanna make a distinction between uh, whether it's you know striving at, at, at value freeness but will never achieve it versus uh, actually being completely value free itself. 
Yeah, and I think that actually applies uh, what you just mentioned about, for example, publications. I think that is one of the largest shortcomings. Um, I tend to focus on sort of the medical statistics and medical machine learning uh, literature. And the shortcomings are that there are a large number of sort of non-quantifiable critiques of the, of the literature. Um, they're non-quantifiable. That doesn't mean they aren't important. Um, there's actually, the, part of the whole problem is that there's a lot of really important things that aren't quantifiable and we can either ignore them and essentially do not useful research. Or we can sort of try to chip away at the corners of them and say, okay, here's where this works, here's this, where, where this fails. I can't quantify it, but this thing it definitely is in here. Um, and so I, I, I tend to fall on the side of, um, you know, lay out your assumptions. Um, yeah. um, and I, I think that's important. And, you know, for example, when uh, I guess a very common one statistics is, you know, uh, the subjectivity, for example, of priors. And what I would say for that is um, I view that the, whatever, however subjective a prior may or may not be, and I think that people should strive to have these things be accurately representing, uh, a prior should actually be representing a prior di a, a probability or a distribution of belief. Um, it shouldn't be, for example, just used to like regularize a model or something like that. But one of my objections to the alternative about not specifying these things is that you are in fact specifying something else, which is just that there is no belief on how this thing is distributed mm -hmm. prior to any knowledge. And so I, I think that that's an example where, and it's also, I think it's a bit harder to cheat um, when you grow, when you just sort of specify exactly what you think is like, you know, if, if you do something where you specify a statistical prior, that's so often one field or another that it's bound to effectively determine what the results can be, then I think that's generally, um, as long as anyone's actually reading the details, they'll be able to figure that out. Um, but yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I guess another question on uh, the generalizability, because um, when we were talking, or when you were uh, presenting on the issue of how your research is interpreted, if there's a concern, for example, that your research is going to be interpreted one way versus the other, and I guess um, what you said was typically scientists present their work in very finite um, terms and then it gets sort of blown up by people wanting to write secondhand about the results. Um, and I think there is some of that, although push back though, that there's plenty of times where people where scientists, people in data science machine learning, aren't so modest about what the actual implications are. <laughs> like the, the number of people who think, for example, that they've solved critical care monitoring through deep neural nets or whatever, it's like th that's in an accurate form of writing. And I think that there is also pressure within the scientific community to try to magnify the generalization of your results as much as possible. So uh, you have pressure as a scientist to say, these are actually more generalizable than just my study. And um, of course we essentially have enablers within the, uh, within other sort of communities that say, oh yeah, yeah, these are super generalizable. Gotta, gotta tell the world about them. And so I guess, I, I think that there is a pressure among scientists first to overgeneralize their claims more than we might like, because that is our goal, that we aren't just solving something specific, we are trying to solve something generalizable. Um, but um, I, I think that there is that pressure with, with scientists as well. And um, I, I think that, again, we have to sort of specify that there, there are those types of things. I agree. And I think that this is one of those cases where I don't mind when scientists speculate about general generalizations of their of their solutions, in fact, I find like the discussion sections in 
um, in journal articles, sometimes the most interesting because that's a, a, an opportunity where a scientist can sort of say like, look, um, I don't have a statistical test that proves this, but I think this phenomena is the result of this cause, or I think that there's this other thing. And I think that actually that's very valuable because scientists oftentimes have an intuitive understanding of their domain that's much better than any of the rest of us who don't work in a given domain. But I do think exactly what you say, that scientists are oftentimes incentivized uh, to blur the lines between those things. So to, to say like, we have this thing that definitely proves X, right? Where in reality, they have something that's suggestive of X, but there are other alternatives which they have been eliminated. And so I think that, that you know, we could do better as an academic community at encouraging scientists to distinguish between those two things more clearly and to trying to remove maybe some of the incentives that scientists face to try and oversell their results. And I think one of, you know, this is one of the cases where I do worry, especially about, about uh, statistics and data science, because this is a case where because there's such um, porous relationships sometimes between academia and industry, there's a little bit of self-financial incentive to oversell because then you can get hired as a consultant or you can sell your, your machine learning algorithm or something like that. And so I think we do need to maybe think a little bit more about imposing more institutional constraints, not necessarily saying people can't work for industry, because I think that communication between industry and, and academia is good, but maybe encourage a little bit more care in the reviewing process or the publication process to make sure that we distinguish between those things that are in a certain sense, uh, well-established by the statistical method and those things which are uh, 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 not unreasonable speculation, but not necessarily as clearly uh, articulated in the data. Yeah, yeah actually, um, I, I didn't plan this, but I, I won't, I'd like to touch on that for a second, the idea of speculation in science, because you know, science is in many ways an inductive process, which is kind of like a hand-to-hand -hand with, with speculation. And furthermore, science is a creative process, and that definitively needs speculation. So I think that there's an issue where, you know, speculation, when you sound like a, uh, a speculator, like some person going out to find gold in a river, um, that, that's not quite right. It's the idea that the speculation is rooted in this belief that there is, you know, an in next inductive step to the to their own research and as you pointed out when you have an intuitive understanding of your subject you're frequently able to make strides beyond for example what the the given immediate data shows us that's absolutely right and and one thing that i think is is sometimes dangerous is that people you know when a scientist goes wrong people sometimes want to accuse them of going beyond their data and I don't, I don't always like that way of putting it because of course we always have to go beyond their data. So an example that I oftentimes use is that there was a study in the 1950s which purported to show that bacteria could not survive in the human stomach. Um, it, you, it was actually a pretty good study. It, it, it looked at a thousand subjects, took, took samples out of their stomach and found no bacteria. Now, it turned out they missed one. Um, they missed the bacteria that causes peptic ulcer disease, Helicobacter pylori. Uh, and they missed it because it's gram negative and they used a gram stain. And so some people will say, oh, they went beyond their data. They should have just said there was no gram positive bacteria. But of course, they went beyond their data because they said there is no, there is no bacteria in any human stomachs. They should have just said in these thousand people, right? You can always define your scientific conclusion more narrowly. Um, but at some point, we do have to take that inductive risk. We do have to take that jump. And so, but I think it's important to be honest about what 
risks we're taking in a certain sense. That is, what jumps are we making? When is it that we're speculating a little bit? So that study, for instance, he was speculating that if there were any bacteria, they would show up on the gram stain. And he was wrong about that. And that's okay, because scientists are wrong, and that's how science works. But we, but by being articulate about the assumptions that we're making and the jumps that we're making, I think we do a service both to ourselves and also to our readers who then can say whether, I mean, in a sort of Bayesian uh, framework, like, do they share our priors? Do they, do they agree that that is a fair leap to take? Or maybe they want to say, mm, I'm not sure about that one. Let's do some more research. Yeah, that, that, that is good. Um, also, yeah, just to double down this point, that type of discussion does make papers vastly more interesting. And I know from my own reviewing process, the papers that don't have those types of discussion, I tend to view as less credible um, because they are not showing that they have that good intuition or appreciation of the subject in which they're trying to operate. Yeah, I agree with you. When I read a paper where they're making a bunch of leaps, but they don't make them explicit, I get suspicious for exactly that reason. Because I think, what else are you hiding <laughs> that, I, that I haven't seen? You know? mm -hmm. But when you're very explicit about here are the assumptions we're making and here are the leaps we're taking, then I have faith that maybe you're not trying to hide the ball. Cool. I guess on, and uh, that leads really to uh, the, another issue where when we do moving beyond the data, where when we have a, uh, a set of data and we have many theories that can explain that data. So the idea of over-specification comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was curious, could you first of all sort of introduce that terminology to us? Uh, wh whether the uh, theory you know, over-specifies the data, does the data over-specify the theory? What is that and sort of why does it matter? And then once you've done that, then we'll talk about the issue of values. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is an old, this is a sort of philosophical point, which is a really important one. That is that ultimately there is always going to be more than one theory that's consistent with the data. This is sometimes used as the data underdetermines the theory. It doesn't, the idea is that no amount of data, no matter how much data you have, even if you had all the data, it, if you could in theory have all the data, it's still, there's more than one theory that's consistent with it. And a simple statistical point is easy here. Even if you have all the data, there's gonna be more than one curve that follows that data in terms of what it predicts in the future, right? It doesn't matter how much, how many data, how much data you have, there's, you, you have more than one curve precisely because you can fit a linear, you can fit a quadratic, you can, you know, you can fit lots of, lots of things. And so as a result, um, we always have to choose from amongst many available theories. We have to decide that the linear model, say, is the right model, um, even though, of course, a quadratic also fits. And so in, in doing that, we have to make decisions as scientists about what we're doing. And, that, and, and, and there's, there's no way around it. That is, um, you can never be, you can, no matter how much data you collect, you will never be in a position where you've eliminated all but one theories. There will always be an infinite number of theories. Cool, and so I guess in that, here's where sort of the idea of values comes in because essentially once we've moved beyond what our data can allow we do have to include values of some sort to help further parse through because essentially we generally can't go to someone and say here are my top five five theories if you integrate across all of these you will become able to come to a good yeah five part solution i don't know like it's it's something where essentially um we we, we are a little bit relegated to a much smaller 
set of possible hypotheses, especially when it comes to action. Exactly. And, and so we have to make choices. And even, you know, what you suggest where, oh, let's, you know, take all the theories that are consistent and integrate across them. Well, even that's a value choice because you're treating each theory as sort of equally valuable and giving it equal weight. Why not treat one of them as more valuable? And so we have to make decisions. And those are decisions where some kind of values are going to influence it. Not necessarily a value like, you know, killing is wrong or some kind of ethical value, but a kind of scientific value of, well, maybe we prefer the simpler one. That's a scientific value, and that's a choice that we make. Or maybe we prefer the one that uh, accounts for more data, not just this one. So if we have a, say, epidemiological model, we might build a model of one disease, but we might prefer a version of that model that applies to many diseases as opposed to just one, something like that. So there, there are all sorts of decisions that we want to make when, when, when deciding between all of the theories that are consistent with the data, and those are value judgments. Now, they're not necessarily what you might think of as traditional value judgments, but they're nonetheless value judgments. And, and I think that this is one of the important facts that you need to be, you need to be explicit that that's what you're doing so that if somebody disagrees with your value judgments, you can have a conversation about that. You can say, I'm choosing this model because it's simpler. Somebody else can say, I'm choosing this model because it's got a broader scope or something like that. And then you can have a debate or maybe not have a debate and just say these are two different perfectly reasonable ways to approach this problem. But it makes it so some scientific debates um, look like debates about facts when in reality, when philosophers have sort of gone back and tried to reconstruct them, they really are debates about value. Do you prefer simplicity more? Do you prefer predictive accuracy more? Do you prefer whatever? And so it's always good to be clear that that's where you're disagreeing so that you don't sort of needlessly disagree or pretend you're disagreeing over here when in reality you're disagreeing over here, something like that. Yeah, no, definitely. Actually, um, I was on an interview with uh, Stats and Stories uh, yesterday, and they were talking to, asking me a bit about um, sort of uh, a belief in scientific outcomes and one of, and especially uh, now with COVID and uh, what you brought up is actually an idea that I, I really think people should be dissecting more, which is when there's a disagreement between two scientific disciplines, mm -hmm. because I think it's commonly accepted, um, maybe with the exception of physics, that these other scientific disciplines all effectively are talking about the same thing using the same methodologies. Um, and that, for example, that a uh, for example, a clinical study is equal to an epidemiological study, is that equal to a uh, microbiological study, and that effectively that these all these points should be fitting together and it's just collecting data about the same set of facts. And I think what people don't realize is that there's fundamental friction between many scientific fields because, again, there are sort of cutoffs when you're changing the scope of what you're looking at. And yeah. um, what some people think is like, oh, you're just ignoring the facts, you're ignoring the science um, because you're ignoring one study. It might be as like, well, yes, I, I recognize that study. However, that study might not generalize to the phenomena as well as, for example, another study might. Or, um, and so I, I think that there's this issue here where when people view these different scientific fields as these synonymous things and that to sample from one is to sample, for example, to sample data from one of these subjects is to sample data from all of them it, it, it does lead to this friction. And that's why there's also a difference between, for example, data and theory, where effectively um, we don't want, we can't let, for example, the data of one subject to override the fundamentally useful theories of another subject, especially um, 
if the theory is well grounded. Um, and so we, um, and that, I think that's another problem that we see where people are frequently, they're trying to throw out the theories of other fields, which are very well grounded, just yeah. because they happen to have data in some other sort of tangential field. I think that that's a great example. And I think that's a really common phenomenon because um, a lot of times different fields care about different types of theories. One of the examples that I like to use is that the boundary between psychology and economics, which is an area that I've, I've, I've studied quite a bit. And so here, economists are oftentimes very interested in getting, uh, especially behavioral economists, are really interested in getting theories that get predictive, accurate descriptions of how people will make choices in economic settings. But the economists are less worried about having a theory that gives you a mechanism that produces that choice. So they're not really interested in figuring out sort of what's going on in, cognitively inside of somebody's head. They're mostly just saying, I want a theory that's going to predict choices because their long-term goal is to then deploy that theory to make predictions about the economy. Cognitive scientists who work on similar problems like economic decision-making oftentimes are very focused on mechanism. They want to understand the mechanism that produces a choice. They want to understand what cognitive processes might be involved in ultimately somebody you know, deciding to say, uh, buy this bag of flour instead of that bag of flour, whatever choice they're studying. And each side will sometimes argue against the other, but they're doing it not it's what they're really disagreeing about is a, a, a question of value. Do is a good theory, a theory that has a cognitive mechanism or not. And the economists say, we don't need a cognitive mechanism. We just want something that's as predictively accurate as we can get in order to uh, um, ultimately make predictions about the economy. Whereas the psychologists say, we care a little bit less about making precise quantitative predictions in every possible scenario. We're interested in understanding the mechanism. Now, I mean, that's a bit of a caricature of both fields, of course, but, but I think that there's something to that debate. And I think it's an important example of exactly what you were saying. They're disagreeing in a certain sense, but they're really disagreeing kind of about ultimately what their goal is or what kind of theory they want. They're not really so much disagreeing about the facts, even though sometimes the debate can, can be made to seem like it's a disagreement about facts. Yeah, and I guess I would add to that that uh, it's also worth pointing out that neither of these are effectively rejecting scientific inquiry as a whole. And that's one of the things I very much dislike about some of this debate where when you uh, exclude a particular study from a certain like set of decision making, that doesn't mean that you're rejecting the use of scientific inquiry as a whole. You might be rejecting a certain usage for its applicability, but rejecting that use for its applicability, rejecting a result for applicability is in fact a scientific uh, process in its own right. And that's right, that's right. Yeah. And that's a case where getting, being articulate about the values that you're using can make it clear that, that both the economists and the psychologists in my example are doing good science. They're just up to slightly different things. And so this idea, this monolithic idea of like, science is one thing we're all after exactly the same thing and we all have to approach it in exactly the same way is a mistake because you can be up to slightly different things even if you're studying the same phenomenon. Cool and um, I guess one thing uh, we probably uh, dance around this a bit but I actually meant to ask it probably first was um, we talked about values. Is there a difference between values and subjectivity? Um, yeah. yeah this is a great question and it's, 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 it's one of those that's like it's a rabbit hole you can fall down because philosophers have been debating about the relationship between value judgments and objectivity for 
at least two centuries, probably longer. Um, and and so it's 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 a big subject. The thing I would want to say quickly is that I think sometimes in ordinary everyday discourse, we sometimes equate a value judgment with subjectivity. Like, you know, we think about like I say chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream, and, but that's just ultimately my judgment for myself, and that you might make a totally different judgment, and there's no sense of right about that. And I would just like to suggest that I don't think that we should equate those two. Um, that is, there are values which we do treat as if they are objective. When I say killing is wrong, I don't mean that to just apply to me in the way that I say chocolate ice cream is delicious, I mean to just apply to me. So some value judgments we take as just fundamentally subjective, whatever you like, you like, but other value judgments we take of as being objective, as being the kinds of things that we think uh, we should hold others to. Um, the source of that objectivity is a complicated matter. Philosophers disagree, and some disagree about whether it's objective in, at all. But I wouldn't want somebody to interpret the conclusion of, 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 of this to say that I'm arguing that science is ultimately not objective, or that science is ultimately entirely subjective, because I don't believe either of those things. I think it's very important to understand that even though values are, are, are involved in scientific decision-making. Science can't be entirely value-free. It's nonetheless the case that um, science uh, can still be objective, um, even though it may be based on certain value judgments, either because those value judgments are themselves objective. So it might be that you know um, some of these value judgments, like killing is wrong, are objective. Or it might also just be because we can make our scientific judgments more clearly related to the values. So we can say, if you value simplicity, this is the correct model. Or if you have this loss function, this is the statistical test that you should use, where that's a perfectly objective statement, but then you're allowed to decide whether you want to use that, that loss function or not. So there are at least two senses in which, even though values are involved, science can be objective. Either the value itself can be objective or the scientific statement, what a philosopher would, would call um, a, 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 a conditional imperative. That is that if you have this loss function, then you would want to use this test. That statement can be perfectly objective, even if you think that the choice of loss function is somehow subjective. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, just to reiterate that, I think from my own data science perspective, I, I like the idea that the difference between saying, you know, chocolate ice cream is my favorite ice cream um, and that like strawberry ice cream is creepy. Um, and, you know, no one requires you to effectively justify those in any rigorous format ever from the get go. Whereas these scientific value judgments, there is a very dense basis of other knowledge and other sort of deductive truths. And um, it, it's much, it's on much more solid ground before you even make those valuations. And another thing that I think is really important to get to is that science also contains the tools to essentially clean out and remove any of the sort of subjective aspects or uh, value-based aspects that get in the way of objective truth. So essentially theories that do are overladen with the sort of excessive number of subjective uh, value, subjectivity or value judgments. Um, the scientific process effectively provides us a way to correct that. So whereas, um, you know, the 
my favorite ice cream is chocolate. Uh, strawberry flavored ice cream is creepy. You know, they're, 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 that's sort of something of an intractable problem. It's right there. Whereas if you're effectively saying, um, you know, um, my belief about these objectively uh, um, observable phenomena is this, and um, that I'm including these sort of uh, value judgments when it comes to my analysis of these things. If those value judgments get in the way of the objective truth, they will be removed over time. There's a way to sort of clean that process out. And I think that's one of the best things about science is that it provides us the corrective mechanism for when we get in the way of our own knowledge. Absolutely. And one of the things that philosophers have been debating, and one of the, one of the things that I, is something that I'm involved in too, is the importance of, especially with some of these, some of these more, what you might think of as more subjective values, it's important that we also have a scientific community that has disagreements about those values, precisely so that we can begin to discover when some of those values may have snuck in. And in economics, a, a good example is that a lot of people have argued that while it's perfectly fine to study the causal relationships between monetary policy and GDP, because you know, those are two perfectly well-defined things that one might want to study, there has been a community level overemphasis on aggregate measures like GDP and less of a focus on disaggregated measures like influence on the bottom 10%, the middle 60%, et cetera, right? And so um, uh, it's not that any one study is wrong because it looked at GDP, but it's rather that when you have almost all your studies that look at GDP, you lose the opportunity to discover that there may be a hidden value judgment there, that GDP is the only thing that matters. And so um, one of the things that we as scientists can do, both in terms of our own work, but also in terms of how we build our departments and how we think about good work in science, is thinking about how um, we might encourage a certain level of diversity about certain kinds of value judgments. So it's, you know, even though maybe I study GDP or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else has to study GDP and that there might be important uh, uh, synergies between two different things, but also important checks on exactly what you say, a way that a value judgment may have snuck in under the radar. And when you have somebody with a slightly different value judgment, it will get uncovered. The danger is that if you have a field that, sh that shares that sort of secret value judgment that nobody realizes is that then it won't get uncovered because you won't have somebody uh, doing the other side, so to speak. And so there's a certain degree to which um, having certain types of value disagreements and certain types of uh, what, what philosophers call cognitive diversity, that is disagreement uh, about these kinds of judgments in the scientific community can really be helpful to move science forward by uncovering places where, um, where we're maybe making assumptions that we aren't being good about uh, being uh, explicit about. Actually, what you just brought up uh, reminded me of, I guess it would be a value judgment in uh, clinical statistics. One that I find very impressive uh, or important is that um, uh, as you talked about, you know, you have GDP measures, it's an aggregate measure. Um, and when you disaggregate it, you're immediately then uh, essentially breaking it down into other very large components. Um, and uh, for medical machine learning, for example, with uh, patient monitoring, one thing that I've noticed is one thing that very quickly helps me discern whether or not I think a paper is appreciating the field is whether they have stratified, for, for example, the predictive accuracy down to the patient level and examined, you know, if individual patients this is accurate or if effectively there are, you know, wide inaccuracies of the uh, algorithm 
but it's just being covered up because you are missing, um, because when you average a whole bunch of patients together, some very large errors can be uh, masked. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I've always really uh, pushed for, for example, in the review process is uh, when someone provides a single metric of accuracy on a ward of hundreds of patients, um, that it, that is, it's a sort of something of a clinical no-go. Like we need to understand where is this accurate, on which ranges is it accurate, and I think that um, the medical community appreciates this. By which I mean the actual medical practitioners appreciate this because they understand again there's a there's a value judgment where we care more about getting things wrong if the patient is deteriorating and unwell than we care about getting it wrong on a healthy patient. So if a person's going to do fine, I don't really care if we are really able to accurately predict their heart rate and things like that, what I do care about is predicting it for the people whose heart's about to stop. Um, and so I, I think that that's an interesting thing where these different fields are appreciating it. And I guess one of the nice things about uh, medicine is that there is a sort of an alignment in that because essentially um, our medical technologies, aside from data science, are becoming much better at personalizing, for example, before we can only tell you whether or not a subgroup would actually, before that we could tell you, for example, before we could tell you that a um, subgroup would react well to a cancer treatment. Nowadays, we can actually create cancer treatments for that subgroup or even for that patient. So as the technology changes, I think that personalization aspect has effectively our, our technological capacity has actually changed what scientifically we focus on. And then the data science can follow that saying, ah, now, now we can look at that personalized level and we'll break down our metrics and our analytics on that personal level. So I think that that is a very interesting thing where these different fields, depending on what's technologically available, will change their focus um, and essentially not leave people out in the cold um, because of that. Um, and that's a great example. And I think it really illustrates how the problem that you're facing can really influence the kind of values that you attach to the kinds of predictions that you make. So if I'm trying to predict, say, um, the budget of Social Security in the United States, I don't need an individual by individual prediction of who's going to die when and, uh, you know, because I'm worried about the budget. I don't care if this person is going to die at, on this date or at this age. But I do want aggregate. I do want to know how many 70-year-olds will there be, how many 80-year-olds, how many 90, how many 100-year-olds, those sorts of things. But if I'm in medicine, I do want a very accurate individual level prediction because I don't care, you know, if, yeah, if I'm a doctor, an aggregate prediction is not helpful or is less helpful, I should say, than an individualized prediction because I have a single patient in front of me and I have to make a decision about that single patient. And that's the kind of thing where there's no scientific fact about whether aggregate level or individual level predictions are better. There's a question about which of those are better for different purposes. And so which model you choose or which statistical uh, technique or machine learning technique you choose may depend on those ultimate purposes. And so in medicine, we really want to, if we can, focus down in on the individual as much as possible because that's what's gonna be clinically useful. On the other hand, if we're interested in an economic model, Sometimes we want that individual level prediction, but sometimes we don't need it because ultimately the community level or the aggregate prediction is, 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 is just as useful or potentially more useful than an individualized one. Cool. And I guess the final question that I'd like to wrap up with or a final discussion point is there's this issue where when people say, oh, science, you know, is um, fundamentally 
uh, there it's run by human. Human beings are subjective. We tend to put value judgments where we identify them. We put value judgments where we don't identify them. Um, we are not cognizant of our own biases. And therefore, effectively, that we should, instead of trying to strive for a more objective approach, that we should effectively just like give in to our subjective passions. Um, like some, you know, uh, on Star Trek, when Spock goes insane because he starts just being like a crazy Vulcan, as opposed to trying to better uh, control his subjective urges. Um, and so I, I think that there's, there's this other side that we haven't really addressed. Um, and again, probably because we are both aligned towards that goal for greater objectivity and um, better, uh, at least airing out your subjective um, beliefs. But there's obviously another component where people are just saying, you know what, time to throw um, caution to the subjective wind and yeah. just be this, we will let make science a subjective uh, industry, if you will. And as uh, W.B. Du Bois points out, that doesn't lead to good places. You know, that doesn't lead to a science that we believe in, that doesn't lead into scientists we can trust. So it fundamentally just drags science down into the mud of um, intellectual endeavors, I would say. Yeah, I agree. And this is one of those things which is always a thorny issue when you talk about the role of values in science, because an interpretation of that is to say, oh, that just makes science into politics. And so scientists are just going to be having the same fight as the, as the Democrats and the Republicans or Labor and the Conservative Party or whoever it is that you know, we're talking about. And so it turns science just into politics. And I don't want to do that. I think that science does have a very important role to play in attempting to be more objective than a lot of these other uh, ways of engaging with one another that we have, like politics or, or, or barroom arguments or whatever. And so I do think it's very important that science strive to be as objective as possible. And statistics is a great example of how we try to remove sources of biases, like confirmation bias and recency bias and these sorts of biases by creating more objective measures. And I think that those are really important and we should continue to strive to do it. So absolutely, I think it's important that science continue to be objective. The one like little thing that I think that the subjectivist folks get right and that I do think is important is that I do think that it's important that scientists also be honest about where the edge of that is that they be honest about those points where they are now making a subjective judgment and where, or where they are now making a value judgment, even if, it's, even if they treat it as an objective one. Because I think that one of the places where science has sometimes gone wrong is that scientists come out and say, this is it, this is objective, there's no question whatsoever, you have to trust us. And then it turns out that there was a value judgment or a subjective judgment of some kind lurking in the background. And then people say, well, see, you can't trust the scientists either. Whereas if the scientists were a little bit more explicit about saying, look, this is our best guess, and, and here's the assumptions that we make, I think that that does better. And actually, I think that this is something where you see progress. I think that a lot of you know, change, say, from, from like the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century, you're starting to see scientists do a little bit better at articulating exactly what they do know and exactly what they don't know. And I've been really actually quite happy about the, about the way that scientists have engaged with the public around the COVID-19 pandemic, because I think they've been good at sort of saying, look, these are the things we know, these are the things that are like best guesses, but that we might be wrong about, and these are the things we just don't have any idea about. And I think that that's been, in, in, it, it, I think the scientists have been exemplary um, in that area 
about, about articulating that. And I hope that that's a model that we continue to hold, not just for epi epidemiological modeling, but for uh, uh, other sciences as well, that we can be very clear about what we, you know, in a certain sense, our degree of uncertainty and the places where we're making subjective guesses and the places where our values are starting to influence some of the decisions that we're making. Yeah, I like the idea that the objective ideal of science requires us to identify the subjective components that are in science. And exactly. so I think that I think that identifying ignoring the objectivity, ignoring subjectivity in science is effectively unscientific and it's unobjective in its own right. Um, so at the very least, that by identifying these things, laying them out, um, trying to have that discussion. Again, those discussion sections in the papers are probably the most interesting bits because that's where you really get, that's where you can actually demonstrate an appreciation for your subject. Yeah, exactly. Great. Kevin, well, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And for you guiding us through this topic, um, I think you brought up a lot of interesting um, topics and I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Hey guys, this is Glenn. Thanks so much for listening to this most recent episode of the Philosophy of Data Science. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button, or small channel and every bit helps. If you have a lab, a department, some students or some colleagues who you think would enjoy this episode, please consider sending it along. Again, every bit helps and we really appreciate your word of mouth. Our next episode on the Philosophy of Data Science will be coming out 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday of next week, so we look forward to seeing you then. But if you can't wait to get more data science, machine learning, and statistical content, feel free to look around the rest of the channel. We have a large number of playlists, including things like machine learning for healthcare, uh, ethics and AI, and things like that. So give a look around. There's plenty more content for you to enjoy. You can also check out our website to not only see past episodes, but what's coming up and see who our sponsors are. Thank you to our sponsors for your support. Now, while the views discussed on the show typically range between extraordinary and mind-blowing, the stated views don't necessarily represent those of the host, our sponsors, my employer, your employer, the speaker's employer, or anyone else not saying those words. And as always, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. See you next week.